All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to New Life. Glad you guys can make it out today. Man, it's good. To, it's good to see your faces. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm being real with that. So, yeah, if you guys don't mind finding a seat, that would be perfect. And uh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get rolling today. Well, my name is Jeff Baker, and if this is your first week with us, I just want to introduce myself. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Life. I'm really super glad you decided to come and worship with us today. I know that uh, you could be doing a number of different things on a beautiful morning like this, right? Uh, but putting God first or seeking after God and being here is so important for your life. So thanks a lot. Glad you guys joined us. I hope that today God speaks to you, that he does, uh, he does an amazing thing inside of your life that he literally uses his word to transform you, okay? So um, that's, uh, that's the deal. I also want to say congratulations to um, a, bunch of, uh, a bunch of graduates as well. So way to go, guys. That's awesome. Um, that shows a lot of what I kind of want to start my sermon off with. It shows a lot of loyalty. It shows a lot of commitment. Loyalty and commitment. Those are some big words, right? Have you ever felt like someone wasn't loyal to you? You ever felt like someone didn't follow through with their commitments? Well, before you start accusing a bunch of people, you might want to hold up a mirror in front of your own face. Um, because most of the times, we are the ones that have done the very same thing to others. I know that the pain is different, and we justify our own actions. But nevertheless, loyalty and commitment are huge issues for us as humans. In fact, a lot of things in life are built around loyalty and commitment like sports teams as an example sports teams do you have a sports team that you are just loyal and committed to huh do you have one just turn to the person next to you and tell them what your favorite sports team is all right just really quick just do that really fast all right all right so now you've shared hopefully you can still sit next to that person for the rest of the service because people get fired up, man. People get fired up about their sports teams. You know, it's hard to live in Nebraska, by the way, if you're not a Husker fan. Let's just be honest. Right? If, if, uh, if you're not a Husker fan, if you don't wear red evidently on Saturdays, man, you're going down. And I know some of you get away with it because you're like, it's the Chiefs red. Take that. I got it. All right. Um, I understand it. Or are you some other sports team Fred? I, I got it. Like, I'm a, I'm a big Blues fan, you know? Does anybody know who the Blues are? Yeah. Do you guys know what sport that is? Man, this congregation is going to be a great congregation in about 20 years once you guys understand what hockey is. So, yeah. Um, all right, so that, that's my team, right? My team got beat, and the playoffs are still going on. It just so happens that I'm a little different when it comes to loyalty of sports. I have another team I'm rooting for, and they're still in. So, yes. You know, because the great thing, the great thing about a sport like, you know, hockey is that you can have your American team and you can have your Canadian team. So there you go. Because you can have both countries. You have to have a, you have to have a team for each country. Um, so there's a lot of loyalty there. Even when I was growing up, uh, there's a lot of brand loyalty, Okay. A lot of brand loyalty, if you go to the grocery store or whatever, but a lot of brand loyalty. When I was a kid, my, my dad wouldn't own any other car other than a Mopar. A Mopar car, right? It, it had to be a Mopar. It had to be created by, like, Chrysler. It had to be, like, a, a Plymouth or a Dodge or one of those types of cars. So one of my first cars was a Mopar car, right? 1964 Barracuda. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Right. 
Alright, and all the wives are looking at me like, what's that? I don't know. Okay, it's not a fish, it's a really cool car. Okay, anyways, when my dad sold it, we made up, you know, uh, about him selling that car about three months ago. Everything's cool. Everything's good. But some of you, you, you despised Mopar, and for you, GMC cars, that was the only way to go, alright? That was it. And if you, uh, if you weren't like, if you weren't in that, uh, GMC group, then you didn't really own a good quality car. Big battle going on. And if it wasn't that, then it had to be like a Ford, like a Ford truck or something, right? Right. <clears throat> and people are still rooting for that. Alright? I know. We all know what Ford stands for though, right? Found on road dead, right? Everybody knows! Why do they keep selling them? I don't understand that. Alright, anyways, anyways, I'm not, I'm not taking one side or another. I, I own a Jeep, so there you go, uh, which happens to be now technically like a Mopar car, so hey, there you go. <laughs> Way to go, Dad. Um, but that's not even where it ends, right? I mean, there's, there's other things that are trying to create brand loyalty. Some, of, some people use an Apple computer, right? Woo, okay. Uh, others of you refer to them as the fruit people. I got it. Just remember, if you refer to someone as a fruit person, your pastor is one of them. So, um, others of you are PC people. All right, I knew I had to give you your opportunity. All right, so there you go, PC. Well, there's other people that you go to the store and you are, you like brand loyal when it comes to soda. Some of you are Coke people, right? Others of you are Pepsi people. Oh, man, Pepsi wins out. Wow, okay, that's, that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, Roger keeps them in business all by himself, actually. And then uh, Pastor Ed does the same thing with Mountain Dew. So we, we're kind of brand loyal around here with Pepsi products. But loyalty. Loyalty and commitment are important pieces in our culture. There's a lot of money that's wrapped up in trying to create loyalty. But let's take loyalty and commitment now to you. You know, how do you feel when someone is, when someone expresses this form of love called loyalty and commitment. How do you feel when someone expresses true loyalty and commitment to you? It's a good feeling, isn't it? When you know someone is, they got your back, they follow through, when what they say is what they do, when they show true commitment, they show true loyalty, when they, when they choose, they choose you over everything else. So what happens though, how do you feel when loyalty and commitment are broken? Obviously it's just the opposite, isn't it? I know that some of you today are sitting here experiencing the pain, maybe recently, of, of uh, what loyalty and commitment when it's broken can do for your, in your life. And uh, I know that's a difficult thing to go through. It's hard to process that. It's, that's a deep root that gets inside of us. It's, it's hard many times to tear that thing back out and to let it go. Take that loyalty and commitment now to one of its most intimate places, to marriage. Take it to that point for a moment. What happens when loyalty and commitment in a marriage get broken? The word we use often when we're talking about loyalty and commitment broken in a marriage is the word adultery. And Jesus, Jesus was a person who didn't skirt around the issue of adultery either. You know, adultery, the, the act of adultery is actually one of the Ten Commandments. It's found in Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 when it says this, says, you shall not commit adultery. I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. You know, there's no, there's no wiggle room there. 
Um, now this is God speaking to his people, but that's the seventh of the, of ten commandments, but that's not even where it ends. God went on and he said this, just a couple verses later in 17, he goes, and oh, by the way, you shall not even covet your neighbor's wife. So God takes this loyalty and commitment issue, especially when it comes to a marriage, he takes it very, very serious. And Jesus himself, he faced this issue in, in ministry. In ministry, Jesus was, was addressed with a question as he was teaching early one morning. Dawn had just come. Jesus is in the synagogue area. He's teaching the people. And then the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of his time, bring a woman who's caught in adultery. And they take her to Jesus and they say this, Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, Stone her. What do you say? There's nothing like first thing in the morning before you get your caffeine getting hit up with a really difficult question. Right? I mean, how many of you just love waking up in the morning, getting ready to go for the day, and then bam, you get smacked with something like that? Well, that's that's where Jesus found himself. Basically, what they were asking him was this. Jesus, what is your interpretation of the Ten Commandments, of the seventh of the ten? What is your interpretation? And by the way, we're standing here right now, we demand an answer. Well... These guys had already brought their interpretation, hadn't they? Their interpretation was, hey, the law of Moses says, which the Ten Commandments were given to Moses, that the law of Moses says we can stone her. That's our interpretation. That's what we're getting ready to do. What do you say? It's a trap. What does Jesus do? If you're familiar with that passage at all, Jesus kneels down on the ground and he starts to write. And as he keeps writing, people start walking away. Now, if you've never heard that story before, which I never assume all of you in the room have heard it, by the way. So if you're here today and you're like, I don't know that story, then just know, I understand where you're at. I don't ever want to be a preacher that preaches to a Christian group. I never want to be the guy who preaches to the people that know everything about the Bible. You know all the stories. If that's the case, there's no reason for us to join together. There should be people that come on our arms, be people that we bring along that they don't know these things. So if you're here today and that's who you are, just know this. I'm meeting you right where you're at. Jesus kneels down and he starts writing in the dirt. The Bible doesn't tell us what he's writing, but as he writes, those religious leaders who brought this woman, all of them walk away one by one, the Bible says, from the oldest to the youngest, and then pretty soon, no one is there. So what does Jesus do? This is what Jesus does. Take a look in John chapter 8. He says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus then said back to her, Neither do I go and sin no more. Wow. Here is the Son of God forgiving a woman who was just caught in adultery, who deserved to be stoned to death. That's extreme grace. That's, that's amazing grace. That is... That's the essence of that whole song, Amazing Grace. Here it is displayed right in front of us. If this was the only teaching, though, that you had ever heard from Jesus on the issue of adultery, what would your conclusion be of Jesus' teaching? Your conclusion would most likely, if this was the only thing you heard, your conclusion would be, oh, Jesus doesn't take adultery very serious. If that's all you heard, Jesus, here he goes, instead of condemning her to the punishment she deserves, he lets her go. You might assume that Jesus is soft or that God is soft on sin and adultery. 
So before you come to that conclusion, you need to know you've got to put together all of the red letters. You've got to put together all of God's word so that you can come to the true conclusion of who Jesus is, what's the hard teachings of Jesus, so you can find the truth you need so that you can apply it to your life so that you can see a spiritual revolution. Obviously, this is not the only thing that Jesus said about adultery. He went on to say some pretty powerful, mind-blowing stuff that we want to tackle this morning when it comes to loyalty and commitment. Why don't you look with me in Matthew chapter 5. It says this. Jesus is teaching and he says that you have heard that it was said. And again, remember, this is back in that Exodus 20 passage. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in where? In his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus gets pretty intense with this teaching. Jesus here is setting a bar that feels almost like it's too high for any of us to achieve. If you even look at the opposite sex, which, by the way, I know that he's, he's bent this passage one direction. But let's be honest today, all right? Because we're going to make sure that we bend it both ways. This is both for man and for woman. And it bends, it bends both ways. If a, if a man looks on a woman lustfully, if a woman looks upon a man lustfully, and let's just get real nitty-gritty, if a woman looks on a woman lustfully, if a man looks on a man lustfully, You're committing adultery in the heart, Jesus says. There's no way to get around this. This, he says, is sin, and the bar is up here someplace. Without raising your hands, how many of you have broken this one teaching that Jesus brought? (laughs) Whoa! Well, I guess we'll see each other in hell. Is that the truth? Is that the case? Is that where it ends? That you break this, that's where we're all going to end up? That's, that's where it goes? Or is there something else that Jesus is trying to teach us here? Is there something deeper inside of this that Jesus is trying to get our attention wrapped around? I think that he is. Why don't you take a look with me in verse 28 when Jesus said this. If anyone who, look, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus isn't saying that you can't look, that you don't, you're not supposed to even look at the opposite sex. If that's what he was saying, then our habit today would be to walk around with our heads down, not looking anywhere, until we found someone of the same gender, and our eyes would raise up, and we would go, wow, hey man, nice to see you today. And then we'd see a woman, well, can't, can't look at her, uh, can't look at him, no, not her, him, okay, yeah, yes, no. That, that's ludicrous. So he's not saying that you can't, you're not supposed to look. His attention is on the word lust. Lust, meaning to strongly desire. Strongly desire or to have strong affection for someone or to long after someone. And what you need to know about these desires is that God created these desires inside of us. He created them for a pure sense. Satan has now used them for a wicked sense. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. Because even Jesus himself has these strong desires 
has these strong affections, has this longing for. The same exact word that's used for lust, Jesus uses out of his own mouth, talking about himself. Take a look in Luke chapter 22. Jesus said that I've been very, what's this word? I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Go look it up, and you're going to discover that the word very eager there is the exact same word used in the passage we're dissecting for the word lust. It's, there's, there's, no, there's no like different meaning. It's the exact same meaning. It's the exact same word. Jesus is lustfully, if I can use that for a moment, lustfully looking forward to this meal that's going to happen with his disciples before before his suffering begins. In essence, Jesus has this strong desire to finish what his father sent him to do. Jesus has this strong affection to eat this meal so they can move on and finish the suffering and accomplish the mission. Jesus has this longing for, in essence, Jesus in his heart is lusting to finish the work. And when I use the word lust, your mind instantly goes to the negative. And you're having a hard time wrapping your head around how this even goes together. That's because the warped nature that we have. We have a sinful, warped nature inside of us. All of us are capable of stumbling and falling and lusting in a sinful way. What you need to know is that this word, this concept has been twisted and the enemies used it to try to warp our own minds, to try to warp us. But you need to know that Jesus was, has a strong desire to do what God's called him to do. Where, where is yours? Is it lusting after the worldly things or is it basically lusting with the strong desire after godly things? It doesn't have to be this wicked, twisted, messed up thing. It all comes from the stems. It stems from the heart like Jesus is teaching us. So Jesus is teaching us that basically the actions of your heart can be damaging or the actions of your heart can be completely rewarding. But it all starts right here in the heart that if you allow the, the, the sin of lust to keep eroding away at your life, eventually it erodes away your very interpretation of even how to live holy before God. It erodes piece by piece until your, your moral compass isn't even set right any longer. That if you allow those wicked, evil thoughts to rule you, it leads to sin. It leads to the action of sin. It is sin, however, in your heart already. When you, when those thoughts come and you entertain them and you don't just cast them out, you don't do something with them, you allow them to eat at you, infect you, you allow them to entertain them in your mind, I'm telling you, over time, that leads to the sin of the heart, but it also will lead to the sin of action. Most, most adultery starts in an emotional sense. Most adultery physically starts emotionally. More, more affairs or more adultery happens from an emotional sense with, with someone of the opposite sex than it does even with the physical sense. Where we, we get into these relationships where we start dialoguing and sharing with one another and one person is sharing or pouring their guts out to someone else. It could be a coworker, it could be a friend, it could even be someone here at church and that you start entertaining that kind of engagement, that interaction with someone of the opposite sex. It feels good at the beginning. You feel like, wow, I've got all the answers. Feels like someone finally understands me. 
Feels like I can bear my heart before this person. Man, I wish that my spouse was like them. And the emotions continue to grow. Where does it start? Jesus is saying, be careful. Stay alert. Be watchful. Because even the godly among you have the ability, you know, to deceive one another. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we, we have a sin nature. Because we're weak. Without Christ, we're weak. Be careful. Be watchful. He's going, watch out for these things because they happen and they erode you and they tear you down. And over time, that lust of the heart degrades the very gift that God's given you in your spouse. I know exactly what I'm talking about today. It was over 20 years ago that Satan attempted to destroy my own marriage and one of the pieces that he used was that adultery piece. I'm not speaking anything about my wife. I'll let her confess whatever she feels the need to confess. I'm using the peace of my own life. And I'm telling you that I watched that happen all those years ago when Jeff Baker was bent on living the way he wanted to live. And Satan came in and he began to tempt. Where did he start the tempting? What eventually led to the physical act? The emotional act. It was the entertaining of those thoughts. It was the breaking of this rule. It was the, oh, I'm better than that. That's not going to get me. I'm okay. I would never do, I got three kids. No, it all falls apart. But when you entertain those thoughts in your heart, they eventually lead to action. And that action is the kind of action that has consequences that rest for the, for the rest of your life. So today, this teaching is very personal for me. And I believe that this teaching is very pertinent for our moment that we're in right now. And that the Holy Spirit really could be speaking to your hearts today. And He could be digging at you right now. And He could be convicting you of the adultery of your own heart. The lust of your own heart. The emotional affair that you're allowing to happen in your own heart. And if the Holy Spirit is digging at that place in your life, take my own example that I just gave you. Confess your sin. Confess it first to God. This is a safe place. This is a place where it's safe. It's safe To say, I have a weakness. It's safe to say that I failed. It's safe. No one's going to come along and beat you up. No one's going to come along and judge you. Find, if you're a guy, find another guy and talk to another guy about your struggles. If you're a woman, find another woman and talk to them about your struggles. But don't let the lust of the heart lay there because if you allow it to lay there, it will be like a cancer that will tear you down and take you out of the game. I don't want to see that happen for you. I don't want to watch that course of action take place for you. But that means you're going to have to humble yourself. And you have to lay your life down. You're not going to be judged here as long as you're willing to take the right steps that lead to righteousness. If you just want to live in your actions and you just want to stay there, well then that's not something that godly people allow one another to do. Godly people challenge one another. We don't let people lay in their sin, waller in their sin and stay there and justify it somehow. We love you too much to leave you there. And that's basically what Jesus said when he was dealing with that woman that we talked about earlier in John chapter 8. When he was writing in the sand, they kept demanding an answer to him. And he says, okay, you want to stone her? Let the guy among you who's never sinned, you cast the first stone. And he knelt back down and he kept writing. And then they all drifted away. That's the reason why you won't find judgment. But you'll find health and wholeness. Because I know that those thoughts come 
And sometimes they land and they take root and they start getting, getting into the, the psyche of your being. They start getting into your soul. They start dominating your thoughts. They start dominating your, your time and then eventually start dominating your actions. I don't want to see that happen for you. Take steps if the Holy Spirit convicts you today. This is a hard teaching here that Jesus brought. It was hard enough that the Pope, back in 1981, Pope John Paul II, he taught on this passage, and he said a pretty revolutionary, powerful statement. When he was teaching on this passage, he said that it was possible for a man to commit adultery even with his own wife. Now, I'm not justifying all the statements that a Pope would make today, but I am telling you that that statement has a lot of power and a lot of truth to it. It's possible that a man or that a woman has the ability to commit adultery even with their own spouse. Listen to this. When you take your spouse and all you do is you turn them into some kind of a sex object just to please you and your own nature, then you are, in in the sense of this passage, lusting after. You have strong desires to please who? Them or you? You. That is the action of this word. The lusting. The act of just using your spouse as some kind of a sex object just to please you, ends up doing the very things that Jesus is talking about. Which, by the way, that's not the way that true intimacy is is brought about. That's not the way that true team is brought about. That That violates Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus says, Two become one. Two become one. It's a 50-50. It's, it's just, this is not one person lording over, dominating over another person. That's using the lustfulness of this passage in an in, inappropriate, sinful manner. That's not what God's called us to do. God's called us to honor one another. God's called us to build team with our spouse. But if, if you follow that out, if what you're doing is turning your spouse into the sex object, then I'm telling you, it's causing division. It's not creating unity. That behavior in a marriage is sinful. It's not the act that we're supposed to take. So how do you avoid the trappings of lust in the world that we live in? Because it seems like the temptation is all around us. Do you agree with me? Yeah, it's all around us. What do you do? First off, start taking thoughts captive. How do you do that? You've got to recognize that those lustful thoughts that are going through your mind, which they're going to go through your mind, that's not the sin. It's what you do with it. That's the sin. Okay, let's be clear on that. Those thoughts are going to come. What you do with them, that's what causes you to stumble in the fall. You need to recognize right off the bat that you are under a spiritual attack. You are in a spiritual war. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says this about it. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We live in a very sinful world full of lustful thoughts and ideas and entertainment and, you know, things all over the place that are trying to get my mind to go someplace it shouldn't go. But I'm not battling flesh. I'm battling something that's beyond this world. I'm battling something that's beyond the sensation on the outside. I'm in a spiritual war. You have to recognize that and put those thoughts in the right category. Then you can start taking those thoughts captive by doing one thing with them first. Running them to Jesus. You take those thoughts and you come to Jesus and you go, I know that this thought that I've allowed to get in and that's allowed to start taking root in me is not godly. I come to you. I ask for your forgiveness. I seek your guidance. I seek the power of your spirit to lead me beyond this. First run to him and seek his help. Seek his guidance. Lay it down before him. Confess to him what's going on. But the second thing, the second thing that you need to consider is to ask God to change the way that you see. 
Change the way that you see. I got, God, change my eyes so that they see the way that you want me to see. When I look at the opposite, uh, the opposite sex, that I would see them as your creation and not some lustful peace. The third thing is pray. Pray for discernment. To know the subtle persuasion of lust. Pray for the discernment to know when lust is actually starting its course. When it's beginning its stages. So that you don't have to run the course into some deep valley before you ever start dealing with it. The Holy Spirit can give you that kind of discernment. Lastly, fourthly, recognize your weakness and don't even flirt with lust. Kill it when it starts. Some of you struggle with this more than others. So we have to equate this really to more like an addiction at times. Some of you have more of that sexual, lustful addiction going on in your life. Others of you have more of an alcoholic addiction. Some of you have anger addictions. Some of you have all different types of addictions. So recognize that's a weakness. Come to the fact that you, you can say, I'm not strong in this area. And don't even flirt with it. Don't even, don't even tempt yourself with the things that cause lustful desires to stir up inside of your heart that grow this callousness in you that will eventually cause you to do things and take action that you never wanted to. Kill it at the beginning. First, take those thoughts captive. The second thing, I apologize, it's been on the screen for the whole time, and I didn't want you to be distracted by it. But the second thing is this, that Jesus said in verse 28 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That is brutal. (laughs) This is the second thing. This is the thing that Jesus said. Follow this instruction. Avoid the lust of the heart. There's only really one occupation that I know of that seems to take this kind of thing pretty serious, and that's farmers. Have you? It's hard to meet a farmer that hasn't seemed like they've cut off part of one of their fingers. Is that true or not? My grandfather was a farmer, right? And I worked with him during the summer, and he was missing part of a finger. And I was like, at that point, I don't want to be a farmer. I don't want to have to lose one of my fingers. You know, when you're a kid, that's how you equate things. Right? And then, and then my very first youth pastor, it freaked me out. No joke. No joke. Right? I, that always freaked me out, my grandfather, missing part of that finger. I always had to wonder, well, how, how did he miss it? And he would always, you know, tell these mean jokes. You know, like, well, I got close to a cow and he bit it off. Or, you know, or your, your grandmother rolled over in sleep and she crushed it. Or whatever. <laughs> he would just say weird things like that. I never really got the true story. I have no idea to this day how he lost it. All right? But I just know this. I didn't want to be a farmer. I didn't want to lose a finger. So I end up becoming a youth pastor in Valdez, Alaska. I go to this church where the senior pastor goes to greet me the very first time, sticks out his hand, and guess what finger's missing? And I'm like, doggone it. It doesn't matter what occupation you go into. I guess you're going to have to lose a limb. This is, this is ridiculous. Well, that's not obviously what Jesus is talking about. It wasn't about something in my grandfather's hand that he cut it off because it offended him. It wasn't something about that that pastor's hand that he cut it off because he offended it. Obviously, Jesus is not saying to you to physically gouge out your eye or do you have to cut off your hand to honor him. It's not about that. 
It's more about the heart. So what is Jesus trying to teach us here? What is the action that we should take? Well, he says, don't allow your eye then basically to rest on an object of temptation or it will lead you to sin. Don't allow your eye to rest on it. Some of us, we allow our eyes to rest on things, knowing that it's sinful, knowing that it's going to lead us away, saying to ourselves the entire time, I got this, I can handle it, I can let my eye rest on this, I can entertain these thoughts, they're not going to take me down. Jesus Jesus is saying, don't fool yourself. Don't let your eye rest on something. Get your eye off of it. Gouge it out, basically. Move it away. Don't let your right hand, don't let your hands be at work doing things that you know violate God's word. Don't do that. You can't do that for long. You can't violate God's word for long and get away with it. It's going to take you down. Don't do it. Jesus is basically saying to us, take the hard road. Do the hard thing. Do away with the things that cause you to sin. Get them out of your, get them out of your life. Cast them out. Walk away from them. Do the hard thing. Let me share with you an example of what I mean by that. It's not the hardest thing, but it's just an example. I, I, uh, many of you knew that I really used to love to golf. I, I loved it. I mean, I golfed all the time. You know, when I lived in Alaska, I had a membership at a course. I, I golfed till one, two o'clock in the morning. I, I would just, I just, my, my clubs just stayed at the course because I was there all the time. Just hopped on my motorcycle, rode up there, jumped out. Course could be closed. I would just walk out there and start golfing because I had a membership. Golfed all the time, man, all the way down to a three handicap. I started caddying for my dad when I was just a kid. My grandfather golfed. My dad golfed. I golfed. It was just part of the family. It's what you did. And I, I actually loved it. I loved getting really good at it. But it started dominating my life. It started controlling me. It started not just controlling my time. It started controlling my actions. Started controlling the things that came out of my mouth. Started controlling my behavior. Started controlling it to a point where I hated what I saw when I stepped out onto the course. It, the, the game no longer became fun. It was more, it was this, I'm gonna dominate it, or it began to dominate me, is what ended up happening. So one day, I took my clubs, and I hung them up on the wall, and I said, I'm never gonna do this again. And I just, I walked away from it all. That was a hard decision for me. That was a hard thing for me to come to. And I've, I've just let those clubs hang on the wall. They've hung on the wall for years and years and years. Let me tell you why. My testimony was getting blown. I would rather go to heaven dragging others with me than to let golf destroy my testimony and authority to preach God's word. So therefore, I let them hang on the wall. That's what Jesus means by gouge out your right eye, cut off your right hand. There's something in your life that's causing your testimony before God to be destroyed. There's something in your life that's causing the authority for you to preach God's word through the way you live your life. Because if there is, cut it off. I know, but it's a, it's gonna be hard, Jeff. It's a, it's a relationship. I know. Walk away from it. It's, it's my, it's my job. Go get another one. It would be better for you to live in the poorest part of this town and to walk your way into heaven and maintain your testimony and your authority before God than it would be just to keep going on knowing that in your heart you're sinning. Whatever it is, whatever you have to do, you take the action, you take the hard action. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you you allowed that sinful thought to grow inside of you until it became your lifestyle and now it's much harder to get away from. 
There's another guy in the Bible who knows this because he didn't follow this teaching in his life and he found himself in some very difficult situations. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David found himself letting his eye gaze upon things that caused him to sin. Let me just tell you that story really quick. 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1, it says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, to you, that might not seem like a, like a big deal. But it's a massive deal. David was the king. Kings went out to war. David was going. You know, it was supposed to go with them. But he decides not to go. What's the very first thing this tells you about David? That the man is completely overconfident. He's overconfident. He is prideful in his confidence right now. He doesn't see the need to be doing the things that God's asked him to do. He doesn't see the need to be the man or the leader that God's asked him to be. He doesn't see the need to do that. So therefore, he stays at home when other kings go off the war. Some of us, we have this overconfidence in our lives that says, sin, can't, sin won't take me down. Lust won't take me down. Alcohol won't take me down. Whatever the sin is, it won't take me down. I'm okay. I can dabble in it a little bit. It won't take me down. Is that the case? No, I'm telling you, the case is you entertain the thoughts in your heart. Over time, those thoughts lead you to action, and then you fall flat on your face. How do I know that? That's exactly what happened to David. David found this happening in verse 2. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed that a woman of unusual beauty was taking a bath. Now, first off, he never would have been in that spot if he had been doing what God asked him to do. But instead, he finds himself in a very tempting situation, standing on the roof of the palace, gazing out over the city, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's the woman, and she's taking a bath on top of her own villa. And he stands there, and he stares, and he watches, and he watches, and he watches. Now, was the... He already, he already committed the sin by staying and not going to war. But then he stands on the rooftop and he gazes out and he sees that woman. Did he have to stand there and keep staring? No. But I'm telling you, the, the, the conditioning of his heart was one where he wasn't, al- he wasn't already living in obedience to God. And so when the sin came, he was vulnerable and he fell. And oftentimes in our lives, you need to know that the lustful thoughts that stick in us, they stick because of our vulnerability. Because we haven't been taking the right course of action to live holy before God. To do what God's caused us to do. We're the ones that have set ourselves up like the fly that gets caught on the fly trap. We never thought it was going to happen. We were overconfident. We had said, oh man, I I don't need to be at church. I don't need to be in that life group. I, I don't have to. I mean, I can just take some time off. I can just get away from it all. Really, can you? No, you can't. There is no taking time off from God. There's no getting away from your journey with God. There's no getting away from the elements that create health in our lives. But when David did this, he found himself vulnerable and bam, he finds himself being tempted to stare and to stare. But look what he does with this though. He doesn't just stop with it. And this is what I'm talking about. Those lustful thoughts don't just stop with lustful thoughts. They lead someplace. Look what David did with them. In the very next verse, it says that he sent someone to find out who she was. Go find out who that girl is, man. She's amazing. That's not where it ends, though. The very next verse, he says this. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. It started with one simple act. I don't have to be 
really doing all that God's asked me to do, do I? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty strong. I, I, we've got this together. I don't have to go out to war. I don't, I don't have to be in fellowship with other believers. I, I, don't, I, I don't always have to be in worship. I mean, come on. I get, 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 cut me some slack here. Okay, that's your choice. Then he starts gazing. And he lets his eye start lusting after the opposite sex. And then what does he do? He starts taking action on it. Let me find out a little bit more about her. Man, I didn't know that about it. Wow, she seems pretty amazing. I'm going to invite her over for dinner. and Maybe we'll see what happens. And yeah, it leads all the way to she becomes pregnant. And if you know anything about the rest of that story, the rest of that story is pretty horrific. What goes down. So what is it that God's trying to say to you today? I believe God's trying to get your attention today. He's trying to let you know none of you are stronger than you think. None of you have lived so righteous for so many years that you're not susceptible to falling flat on your face. That all of us have the tendency to let our eye gaze upon things and lust after things of this world, whether it's the opposite sex or it's other things. All of us have that ability. And what should we do with those things? Not, don't entertain those thoughts. Those thoughts are always going to come. I'm telling you, as long as you're alive, you're going to, there's going to be a temptation to lust after something because Satan wants to, he wants to twist that thing and he wants to cause your heart to long for things that aren't godly. That's his whole intent. His whole intent is to get your heart to long after things that aren't godly. He's never going to stop. But what are you going to do with that? God wants you to run to him. Cut off the lustful relationships. Confess your lustful behavior. Seek the help of others in that way. It will be better for you to face your sin now than to spend eternity away from God. That's what God's saying to us today. What have you been gazing at lately? What have you been staring at? What's, what's got your attention right now? What's causing the thoughts in your heart to maybe entertain ideas of drifting away from God? They're just little right now. But I'm telling you, they're little, but they grow to big things. What behavior are you engaged in right now where you're giving your emotions away to something or to someone other than Christ? Where are you finding emotional satisfaction in this world with some other human being or with some other thing instead of finding your emotional satisfaction with God? And for some of you, your actions... The actual physical actions of your life are actions that are, you know they're breaking God's law, but you feel like you're caught in it. I'm telling you, today, let today be the day of freedom for you. Run away from those things. Cut those things off. Do the hard thing. Gouge them out. Cut them off. It would be better for you to cut those things off. It would be better for you to gouge those things out of your life than to spend eternity even absent from God because you didn't deal with with the seed that started as the lustful thought. That's where God's at today. So what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? That's the only thing you're responsible for today. I'm just bringing the hard teaching, trying to reveal some of the truth. You have to apply it today. And if you do, you'll see a spiritual revolution. You'll see your life come alive with Christ in a brand new way. You'll start finding your eyes gazing on Christ. You'll start finding your heart lusting after the things of God. Strongly desiring, strong affection for the things of God, longing for the things of God. You can find that spiritual revolution happening inside of you. 
But you've got to take the first steps and start gouging them out and cutting off the things that are causing you to lust after the pieces of this world. It's your choice today. It's God's word in your hands to apply it. So why don't we pray? Why don't you stand with me? Father, we come before you today. We know that your word is true even when it brings hard teaching. You know that your word is true even when it steps on our toes. Even when it, even when it addresses the things that, that we've tried to set up as comforts around us. Things on this world, in this world that please us, that make us happy. But we know that. But God help us today to say yes to you. Help us today to apply your truth to our lives. Help us today to run to you and go, God, we want to gaze our eyes on you. We want to fix our attention on you. We want to fix our strong desires on you, God. To do that, Lord, you're saying, well, then you're going to have to cut off, cut out and gouge off, gouge out those things that those strong affections are being redirected to. You're going to have to cut those things off where those strong desires are stealing away your attention and your time and your emotions. Lord, this message today is, is timely. It might, it might even save marriages. This message today, it, it might save a person from finding the same destruction and the consequences that King David had to walk through. A message like today, God, could save people from walking through the turmoil that I walked through over 20 years ago. Lord, we have to heed your warning. We have to heed your truth. We have to apply it to our lives. So Lord, may the power of the Holy Spirit be at work in this congregation. May you be purifying us Sunday after Sunday so that we look more like you, sound more like you, and behave more like you. May there truly be a spiritual revolution that happens in our hearts. I pray that today. I ask that today, God. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would deliver that to those who seek you. In Jesus' name.